Please remain standing as you are able for the reading of God's word. The reading for today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 28. I will be reading in Polish. The English translation will be on the screen as I read it. Lecz Chrystus naprawdę zmartwychwstał jako pierwszy z umarłych. Skoro śmierć przyszła na świat z powodu człowieka Adama, to również zmartwychwstanie przyjdzie przez człowieka Chrystusa. Z powodu Adama wszyscy umierają, ale dzięki Chrystusowi wszyscy zmartwychwstaną. Każdy we właściwym czasie. Najpierw powstał zmartwych Chrystus, w czasie jego powrotu ożyją natomiast ci, którzy do niego należą. Potem nastąpi koniec i Chrystus przekaże królestwo Bogu Ojcu, a wszelkie władze i potęgi przestaną istnieć. Chrystus ma bowiem panować do czasu, aż wszyscy Jego przeciwnicy padną u Jego stóp. Ostatnim pokonanym wrogiem będzie śmierć. Bóg podał bowiem wszystko władzy Chrystusa. Oczywiście wszystko oprócz siebie samego, bo to On jest tym, który podał wszystko Chrystusowi. Gdy więc już wszystko zostanie poddane Synowi Bożemu, wtedy także On przekaże władzę Ojcu, który dał Mu wszystko we władanie. Odtąd Bóg będzie obecny we wszystkich i będzie panował nad wszystkim. This is God's word. Please be seated. Good morning, church. If you're visiting, I've never met you before. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. And parents uh, with kids through second grade, you may take your kids to children's church. And a reminder to pick them up either right before or right after you take communion. Uh, I know since we have child dedications today that we have some visitors in, so a couple things to note. Uh, one, if you're wondering why did we do a scripture reading in a different language, this is a small way in our liturgy that we uh, acknowledge the, the reality that our faith is a global faith, that people from every, every tongue, tribe, and nation uh, confess and believe in the name of Jesus Christ and worship him, and it's a beautiful way that we get to uh, show that in the way that we do liturgy in our church. The other thing to note, and we mentioned this last Sunday too, that you're wondering why there's two screens and only one of them's functioning. Uh, a while ago, we haven't mentioned this, we, we were able to raise some funds through your generosity to install permanent uh, projectors and screens. The screens are installed, the projectors are not. And like many of you are probably dealing with, it's due to supply chain issues. Uh, so someday in the future, we have this, this future theological hope, and not only the resurrection, but these projectors would be made and installed. So that's what's going on. So for now, we just have uh, one side functioning. Uh, you're joining us for a sermon series on 1 Corinthians, and we are in 1 Corinthians 15. We actually skipped ahead a couple chapters uh, to be able to unpack 1 Corinthians 15 uh, for Easter last week, and as you heard, uh, the season of Easter that we're in the midst of right now. And so we're in second week of having to do about three weeks in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 that deals with the resurrection, both Christ's resurrection, the reality of our resurrection. So next week we'll uh, do one more week in 1 Corinthians 15. And then we're going to go back to 1 Corinthians 11 and, and go through some of those chapters before we wrap up the letter. So let's go ahead and pray and we'll dive into uh, 1 Corinthians 15 together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these people that you have gathered here because you led them here by your spirit 
they believe in your son Jesus Christ and long to worship him and hear his word and to be transformed by his grace. And there might be others here, Lord, that are here because of a connection and a relationship or curiosity about this faith, but they're not there yet. They don't identify with this faith, but they're leaning in this morning. Thank you, Lord, that they are here too, Lord. And I pray that uh, the most important doctrine of our faith is clear. Uh, so it's something that they can deeply consider and perhaps put their trust in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You ever think about things that has happened in your life that you look back and you're like, wow, that was a gigantic waste of time. And I have three uh, things that came to mind as I was reflecting on that question myself. One is uh, we, we used to have uh, different flooring in the fellowship hall downstairs and we want, every once in a while would rent a buffer to buff the tile floor. And one of the times that we moved into this property, uh, back into this property for the first time, we rented one of those buffers. And uh, through a variety of, uh, for a variety of reasons, the, uh, the buffer needed to go back and it was actually late to the rental company. So I decided, you know what, I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna take it back, but it ended up being on a day that it was like one of those epic snowstorms that happened somewhere between uh, September and June in uh, Minnesota, right? So one of those uh, snowstorms, so I was like, I still need to get it back, we're gonna to have to pay extra, I need to get this thing back, so I, it was one of those deals that was during rush hour, it was snowing, and it was a, supposed to be like a 15 minute trip that ended up taking 60 minutes, and when I got there, I found out that the place had closed because of the weather, even though it was during their business hours, so I wasn't able to take the thing back anyway. That was a waste of time because the goal of the whole trip was to get this thing back and it was not fulfilled. Another thing that I think is a waste of time is, is paying extra to get on an airplane early. If you do that, that's cool, but I, I, one of the things I do not like to do is go from a spacious like terminal where you can stretch out your feet and then pay extra money to go out in a cramped shell called an airplane for extra time. But some people do that. They pay extra money to be part of that group that's called in on first. And I just look at them like, have fun with that, suckers, because you know, I'm six foot two. I do not like being in that space. I'd rather, I'd rather pay the poor man's fee and go in the uh, last. So that's another reason. I think that's a waste of time because there's no benefit to the cost. And another thing, and, I, and I'm hearing this a lot uh, this time of year, is I have been, uh, since probably junior high, a Timberwolves fan. And this is the second week in a row that I've mentioned them because they're in the playoffs. But I've heard repeatedly through my life, why are you cheering for them? They're just going to disappoint you. And they're not wrong. They've never won a championship. They barely make the playoffs in over two decades. So why do that? Because the pushback is that's a waste of time. Don't invest time into that because they, there's no evidence that they will ever win a championship. It's not your, your, your affection for this team, your loyalty to this team is not grounded in reality. That's, and they, there's a point, there's a point. But I would say the Vikings too, the same problem. Um, but here's, here's the point that I'm making with all these examples, whether you think about things in your life that are a waste of time, and it's a waste of time because the goal's not fulfilled, there's no benefit to the cost, or it's not grounded in reality, Paul is about to take us through a same thought experiment to show that if the resurrection of the dead did not happen in Jesus Christ, 
it is also a gigantic waste of time because the goal of the Christian faith was not actually fulfilled. All the things that you are investing in in church life and your faith and your daily life is a gigantic waste of time because the benefit that you won't get any benefit from that cost. And more than anything, if the resurrection didn't happen, then this faith is not grounded in reality. So Paul is going to help us to consider the implications of the Christian faith if the resurrection didn't happen, but he's also going to show us the implications of the faith since the resurrection did happen. So he starts uh, with getting us through uh, this thought process of what what should we think about with the Christian faith if the resurrection didn't happen? Look at verses 20, or 12 through 13, rather. 12 through 13. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has, then, then not even Christ has been raised. So here's the problem. Over time, it seems that some in the Christian church of Corinth rejected the bodily part of the resurrection, the belief that Christians have in Jesus' resurrection and then their future resurrection. And they 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 are these these strong, they think of themselves as strong, knowledgeable, very spiritual Christians, but they are rejecting this foundational belief in the Christian faith. For them, it's crazy to think that a corpse would come back to life. It's better to think that maybe it was a spiritual resurrection or a good metaphor for renewal in general. And Paul here is reminding them that there is a lot at stake if you are denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. You are taking the very foundation out of the Christian faith. If there's no resurrection, Paul reminds them, then Christ did not raise from the dead. And if he did not raise from the dead, then there is no Christian faith. It all collapses. And he gives a couple examples of what things in life would be useless if the resurrection is not true. Look at verses 14 through 16. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. If Jesus isn't raised bodily from the dead, then any witness of the gospel is useless. What I'm doing right now, preaching about the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is a pointless activity, and it's pointless for you to be here to listen to it if Jesus didn't really raise from the dead. And not just me, but any time that you have shared your faith with family, friends, co-workers, any time you've done that, Anytime you've told other people that the reason you do things in your life is because of Jesus, all that Christian witness is bogus. Stop wasting your time. If Jesus didn't raise from, your, raise from the dead, stop wasting your time witnessing about your Christian faith. And even worse, he says, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, then every time that I've preached the gospel to you, I've been a liar and deceptive. And so have you. If you've ever shared the gospel with another person, you have been promoting a falsehood that is not grounded in reality. Here's another implication if there's no resurrection. Verses 17 through 19. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. 
If Christ has not been raised, your faith is absolutely pointless. It doesn't matter how strong your faith is. You can have really strong faith, but if it's not in something true, it falls apart. There's no, there's no hope for you in any of the problems of the gospel if the object of your faith is a falsehood. And he unpacks that a little bit. If Christ has not been raised, then you still have a sin problem. The, 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 the darkness and deception in your own heart, you're still, you're still overcome by sin, and there's no hope for salvation if Christ is not raised from the dead. No resurrection means that there is no Savior, no forgiveness, no atonement. If Christ has not been raised, he goes on to say, then everyone who has died that you know and love, but they died believing in Jesus, they are still lost, and death took them out, and there is no hope of eternal life or future resurrection for them. Even the dead are lost in death forever. And if there is no resurrection, then Christians, he says, are fools, and they're to be pitied. And to be pitied is not a great thing, is it? Has anybody ever liked to be pitied? Is that something that brings you a lot of joy? I don't like it, and I think most people do not like the feeling of somebody pitying you. Let me, let me unpack this a little bit. Let's say you're playing a game, you're really competitive, and you lost. You know, maybe it was your fault, you, you had a blind spot, you made the wrong move, you lost the game. And then the reaction is pity. Pity for you, you sore loser. Oh, man, if only you were better at that game, you might have won the game, but you poor fool. I bet you regret your life now that you lost. I have pity for you. How unfortunate for you. It really stinks to be you, you loser. Like, nobody likes that. Nobody likes to be pitied, and that's exactly what he's saying, that if the resurrection didn't happen and we have all this hope in a false reality, we should be pitied for what our life is and what we're committed our lives to and the way that, that we orient all of our life around Jesus Christ and his causes, we should be pitied if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. Everything you're doing would be a waste of time if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. Every moment that you have volunteered for the church or your community and the cause of Christ, that's a waste of time. Every Christian friendship that you stretch to make because the only thing that connects you and this other person is the resurrection. There's so many differences that you might have with other Christian relationships, but you always have Christ in Christian relationships, so you lean in, even though maybe outside of Christ, outside of the church, you wouldn't necessarily naturally have that relationship, so you sacrifice for it. You commit time to that. But the reality is, is that would be a worthless investment, a worthless use of time if Christ did not raise from the dead. And the stress of coming here on a Sunday morning when you have those stressful Sundays, also a waste of time. The fight that you had with your spouse but you came here anyways, the poopy diaper that you had to deal with before you left the house because kids, Christian kids, love to light up their diapers right before corporate worship. Like all that, right? Right? You know what I'm talking about. Like why, why try to muscle your way through all that and come here and, 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 and do all that if Christ didn't raise from the dead? If Christ didn't raise from the dead, your Sunday morning would be better used going out to brunch or sleeping in or catching up on projects and not wasting your time here. That's exactly the points that Paul is making. Think of all that. Why would you base your life on a lie if Jesus really didn't raise from the dead? Stop wasting your time. You should be pitied if you're committing your life to something that's false. But here's the good news, Paul says, verse 20 to 23. But 
Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive, but each in turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So Paul's setting up a couple frameworks to help his readers and us, his listeners, understand the resurrection. One has to do with Adam, the first human being. And if you read the Genesis story, Genesis 3 especially, we learn that Adam turned away from God, the giver of life, and he went on to a path of death, and because sin entered the world, he and all of his descendants are now caught up into the power of sin and death, and we to this day inherit that. It's imputed to us as a, as a theological term that's, that's talked about, that, that we gain that, and we are sinners bent towards death, both by our choices and also because of our nature. But then he also says, if that's true, here's the good news. Through the God-man, Jesus Christ, resurrection and life comes. You didn't do anything to earn or deserve uh, the, the sin that is imputed to you, but you do live out the reality of that with our choices each and every day. But in the same way, we also, if we believe in Jesus Christ, gain the righteous work of another and the resurrected power that comes from Jesus Christ. So yeah, we might be dead in Adam, but if we turn to Christ who gives life, we will be made alive in the resurrection of the dead. And then he uses this phrase, this, this word first fruits, to, to, to draw more attention to the reality of the resurrection. And for the original readers, they would be thinking about harvest. And, and think about this in your own life. Any, any time that you've planted something, maybe in a garden, done landscaping, and it's that season where the fruit or the grain, the first kind of wave of it starts to come, and you know that, that, that you get to harvest that right around the corner, that those vegetables, that fruit, whatever, that grain, that's, that's the first wave of a much greater harvest that's coming. Living in the north, I think about it more in the, the framework of spring, but it's the same type of metaphor, right? We live in a long, long season of winter, but every year spring comes, and you see evidence of it. Even right now, right, there's evidence that spring's about to come, and you're landscaping with bulbs that are starting to pop, buds on the trees, maybe a couple of them are starting to show green. This is the sign that spring is going to come in a matter of time in its fullness, that's what you're thinking of. This is the season that's coming ahead. That one bud will eventually turn into a, a, a tree full of leaves, or that one flower will turn into a beautiful garden. And this is an important metaphor, because especially in the north, and this is what we're experiencing with the weather right now, we know that spring's coming, but we get hammered still by the reality of winter, it seems, with cold weather and accumulating snow. That's the reality, but we know because we see the signs, we see the evidence, but winter will get beat again. Spring always beats winter, every single year, even though it doesn't feel like it sometimes. We know that the signs of spring are here, and the world will burst forth with life again and warmer weather and longer days. That's what this category of first fruits means, that Jesus is the first fruit, that first, that first sign of life in spring. That first sign that the harvest is about to happen and all the fruit and the grain will be coming to pass for harvest. That's the hope of the resurrection. But first, 
death needs to be destroyed. And that's what he says in verses 24 through 28. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Paul here is quoting a psalm to show how God's purposes are being fulfilled in Christ. God is committed to his plan to renew a people for himself and to renew heaven and earth, and he sent his son to be the one who accomplishes this plan of renewal. Jesus came. Jesus died for our sins. He was raised on the third day. He appeared to many, and he ascended into heaven where he continues to reign to this day. And this means that the risen Christ is still active in his sovereign reign. And he will continue to reign, the text says, until every dominion, authority, and power is defeated. And that's phrases that just means anything, anything that's opposed to God and his plan and his purposes, anything that's opposed to God will be defeated. Every injustice in society, every sin, and all evil has an end date because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his continued reign in history. And the very last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And Paul here briefly clarifies what he means by all things being subject to Christ. He's saying that doesn't mean that God is subject to Christ. God is accomplishing all his work in Christ. In addition, Paul writes that, quote, the Son himself will be made subject to God the Father. And this does not mean that God the Son is a lesser being than God the Father, nor is Paul saying that Jesus is eternally submitting to God the Father. This language is just talking about the work of Christ in redemption and not the eternal being of Christ. But here's the main point he is making in all of this, that in Christ, God is working out his goal of defeating evil, sin, and death, so that, and this is how he ends that verse, He may be all in all. It's a shorthand way of saying what Paul writes in Romans 11.36. For from him and through him and for him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. The end day will be God glorified in every single aspect of your life, every single aspect of society, and every single aspect of a new heaven and new earth that all things will give God glory forever and ever and ever because of the power of Christ's resurrection being fulfilled in the end of history so that you will have a day if you are in Christ where you get to be in a place where there's no more hindrance of sin, no more threat of death, no more injustices in society that are keeping us back from the giver of life, but all those things have been destroyed and all you get to enjoy forever and ever and ever is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. That's what's going to happen in the end. And Paul is emphasizing that's all due because we know that Jesus Christ raised from the dead the first fruit of what's to come. Preachers have often used this illustration to talk about the time that we are living in. I don't know who the preacher is that originally did this, but job well done because a lot of people plagiarize it. Uh, A lot of other pastors use it 
quite a bit. So I don't know who the source is, but the source talked about, whoever the original source is, talked about how World War II and D-Day and VE Day is a way to think about this. D-Day, if you know history in World War II, is when the Allies stormed the beaches of Normandy, and they, in history, that was the decisive battle. The war was going to be over. The, the Nazi uh, uh, nation was being defeated in that day, and it was a matter of time before they would surrender. But surrender didn't happen yet. There were still battles to be fought. There was still time for the war to unfold. But eventually, because of D-Day, VE Day, that's Victory in Europe Day, was declared where the Allied forces were declared uh, the victor of this war. And many say that this is exactly what the resurrection of Jesus is showing us. And the death and resurrection of Jesus, that was D-Day. This, it's wrapped up. The victory is won. And now it's just a matter of time before VE Day is declared when Jesus returns, judges the living and the dead, and defeats sin and death once and for all. And then we will live, for those of us in Christ, will live in that victory of his resurrection forever and ever and ever. And I know there's a lot of concern nowadays. What does it mean to be on the right side of history? You've probably heard that phrase quite a bit, and there's different political groups and different worldviews that are telling you what it means to be on the right side of history. But I tell you this, that just since Jesus raised from the dead and it guarantees where history is going, you are only on the right side of history if you are in, in Christ and grafted into him and believe in the power of his resurrection because that is where history is going. That is the solution to all what is ailing us in our human heart and what is ailing our society. And Christ is going to overcome these things. And to be in Christ is to be on the right side of history. Paul returns to this thought experiment of what if Christ didn't raise from the dead in verses 29 through 32. He says, now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who... What, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts, beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained if the dead are not raised? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Paul goes back and gives a couple more examples of how things are pointless if the resurrection did not happen. One is this really confusing thing, baptism of the dead. And throughout history, there's probably been almost a hundred theories given to what that could mean, which means nobody knows for sure. Put that in the category of nobody knows exactly what that phrase means. And it's one other indication that should remind you as Christians nowadays that this, we weren't, even though the Bible is written for us, the Bible wasn't written to us. There was something that the Corinthians knew about this that we don't. And there's all these theories of what it could be. They could be vicarious baptisms, that are, that's baptisms on behalf of people who are already dead. But if that's the case, Paul is not given an example of something that he endorses. He wouldn't endorse that, and Christian history doesn't practice that. But he's just saying that this practice that I don't particularly like doesn't make sense if you don't believe in a resurrection. That could be what he's saying. Other people have theorized that baptism of the dead might mean that Christians were getting baptized over graves. Or in, this case, or in another theory, dead could just mean that those who are alive but spiritually dead. Or it could mean that the reality that our bodies are subject to death apart from Christ's death and resurrection. 
We don't know what it is, but the point is clear. Why are you doing this if you don't believe in a bodily resurrection? It doesn't make sense. And then Paul says, everyday sufferings of Christians also don't make sense if the resurrection didn't happen. The everyday sufferings of Christians for the sake of the gospel are pointless if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. And why would Paul himself endanger himself so much in faith's death constantly if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. And he gives this specific example of dealing with these beasts in Ephesus, which is, is, is something that he's calling his opponents, his human opponents, in Ephesus. It's a metaphor for these abusive adversaries that he's facing in his current ministries. He's saying, why do any of this? I mean, if the dead are not raised, and then he quotes Isaiah, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. All right, and this is not a quote that's saying, yeah, let's party like it's 1999, to quote the great theologian Prince, right? That's not like what he's saying here. He's saying it's actually more grim than that. It's like the picture, if you read Isaiah 20, 22, is there's this picture of judgment coming to God's people, surrounded by an army, and there's nothing they can do about it. Tomorrow they're going to die. And so they're just like, well, since life is awful, there's no hope for the future, we might as well eat the food and drink the drinks because tomorrow we're just going to die anyways. What is the point? So it's not a fun party. This is a party that has around it the threat of death. And so what's the point of doing anything, striving for anything? Let's just eat and drink. We're going to die anyways. That's how important the objectivity of the resurrection is. I want to pause here and lean into maybe those that could be here uh, that are skeptical about the faith, but also lean into this point a little bit more because there might be someone in your life that's a little bit skeptical about the faith. And people struggle with Christianity for a lot of different reasons. They might struggle with Christianity because of sexual ethics of the faith, or they struggle with Christianity because of the behavior of other Christians, or they struggle with the interpretation of some obscure verse that nobody knows exactly what it means, maybe baptism of the dead, something like that, right? But let me be clear. None of those struggles really matter if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. That's the foundational thing. If that didn't happen, don't even struggle with this. Don't even, don't even like lean into the face. Don't waste your time to even like wrestle through with these questions because foundationally, all that matters in the Christian faith for it to be real and worth spending your life on and also worth considering if you're a skeptic is the question, did Jesus raise from the dead? Because if Jesus did raise from the dead, then you have to take seriously everything that he commands, even if you don't like it, and even if you are not sure exactly what he's saying, you submit to it because this is the resurrected Lord of heaven and earth telling you about who he is and how to follow his ways. C.S. Lewis once made the point that no one can simply embrace Jesus as a good moral teacher uh, and not also embrace him as the Son of God who raised from the dead. The problem with saying that Jesus was just a good man is that Jesus taught that he was more than a man. He taught that he was divine. And that could make him a lunatic, or it may mean he lied about it, and both those situations is not something that would be worth giving your life to. Either of those options would mean that he is no longer a good man if he was a lunatic or a liar. And the other option Lewis gives us to affirm and to consider is that that only means that Jesus is Lord. As Lewis said, quote, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet 
and call him Lord and God, but let not let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his, his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Well, there's one, Lewis, there's one option that Lewis uh, uh, left out that many of my skeptics, who are close friends of mine, have pointed out. He says, what about uh, the option that this is a legend? Okay, I understand he's not a, he is either lunatic, a liar, or... Lord, but what about legend? And this is kind of a big fish approach to understanding the Christian faith. Like, maybe we really do believe that Jesus raised from the dead, but it's just not grounded in reality because this kind of became a big fish story. You know, the first fish you caught was only maybe like you know, three inches long, but by the time you get to be retired and, 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 and you know, 65 plus, that, that story and that fish became the size of the world record muskie, right? And it was just massive. So over time, it just became like a stretch of something that might have been confused with the resurrection, but it became a big fish story. That also isn't a good option, and here's why. And if you really want to go deep into it, especially if you're, you're ministering to skeptics, if you yourself are a skeptic, the best defense of the resurrection of the dead comes from an author named N.T. Wright. He wrote a really thick book called The Resurrection of the Son of God. There's a smaller article called Christian Origins and the Resurrection of Jesus that I would encourage you to check out. But here's his basic point. He asks, because this is a historical question, did Jesus raise from the dead? Christians say yes, skeptics say no. But here's what both people have to do. People today believe that Jesus raised bodily from the dead in history. And a historian has to explain where did that belief come from. It didn't just appear out of nowhere. It had to come from somewhere. And here's the difficulty with uh, how this belief came into history. The difficulty is there was no framework at the time, especially in the Jewish faith, that had a category for somebody raising from the dead before this end-time event where everybody and all of God's people are raised from the dead. See, there were people that believed in the resurrection, they believed it was going to be an end-time, just, just catastrophic event where all of God's people are raised uh, from the dead at the same time. There was no category for the Messiah raising from the dead by himself before that happened. So that belief was affirmed 2,000 years ago, and the historian has to explain where did that belief come from because it looks like it came out of nowhere. And Christians are of the persuasion that this is where it came from, that Jesus literally raised from the dead by himself as the first fruits of resurrections to come, and that explains where the belief came from. And if you're a skeptic and you're like, I don't buy that, then you have to actually do the work of explaining then what led to this crazy belief coming out of nowhere. You can't just wave it off. It's a question of history and truth and objectivity. You have to actually do the work of explaining your skepticism rather than just brushing it off as a superstition. Because this belief came from somewhere, and I'm here to testify to you that it came from the reality that Jesus Christ of Nazareth indeed died on the cross and three days later raised from the dead and he continues to live and reign to this day until he wraps up history in a new heaven and new earth. And this is how Paul concludes. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this 
to your shame. He quotes some reference in pop culture in ancient Corinth, bad character corrupts, or bad company rather, corrupts good character. In other words, he's saying that those who are denying the resurrection are corrupting you and corrupting the church, and you're being misled by anyone who denies the object, objectivity of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, wake up and come to your senses, stop your sinful rebellion, and come back to Jesus who is raised from the dead. And since he is raised from the dead, brothers and sisters, everything we are doing right now and throughout our lives to worship and commit to his mission is full of purpose and meaning and glory because the good news that you get to hear again today is that Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Amen, brothers and sisters? Is that something you can get behind and give your life to? Jesus Christ raised from the dead.